Welcome everybody, good to see you. I think it turned out to be, I think, what, this is four weeks since our last year. Um, it was Hanukkah, where we were all hopefully doing wonderful things. And then I was in America for two weeks. Uh, and then uh, I was in Bidud last week. So I'm happy to be back and out of Bidud, although I know uh, some of our regulars are in Bidud. And, uh, you know, everyone's uh, kind of gotten their lives turned upside down a little bit. So uh, we have some people on Zoom. Um, anyone on Zoom, if they can mute themselves, I'd appreciate that. And... Um, we want to get started. I apologize for the delay. Uh, I can't say I'll never travel again, but hopefully it won't be four weeks uh, in between Shurim. That uh, doesn't always work out that way. And um, unfortunately, I should just add as a postscript, for those who may remember, our very last shear um, was a special shear. At the time, it was ripped from the headlines of late-breaking news of a merging scandal, uh, which took a horrible turn. Uh, I don't want to discuss it anymore. Other than to say that I certainly don't regret anything I said then. If anything, I would have said it stronger. Um, and uh, it's a tragedy for, for everyone, although the tragedies are not equal. Uh, but they are, uh, tr- there's nothing good at all about that story, unfortunately. Uh, I have great things to do today. Uh, nothing tragic at all about this. An amazing but a very important topic that is both timeless um, and timely, uh, and that is the question uh, of gender differences in halacha. Now, I admit I kind of use that as the te- headline because it's slightly provocative, and I hope it would get people to come. Um, <laughs> but it's to- also totally accurate. What I mean to say is that it's not as specific as I could have done, because under the rubric of gender differences, we could have literally a year's worth of shurim, which would all be subcategories of that, which... Over the year and hopefully many years we have together, maybe we will do a lot of those topics. But for now, we're just going to do one very specific topic. You, I, you know, I, I'm not going to take the time to poll everyone, what did you think gender differences in halacha might mean? Although I did, when I sent out the text, I did give you a little hint. I, I think I sent some questions, that, you know, leading thought questions, which is what I really want to speak about. Uh, but because under gender differences, we can be speaking about many, many different things. What I specifically want to speak about is the differences when it comes to mitzvot. The idea that women and men have different mitzvah obligations... Uh, and different mitzvah uh, exemptions, I guess, would be the flip side uh, of that. So there are many other things we could talk about, maybe one that we will talk about, uh, but I would like to uh, have a broad discussion, but a broad discussion that is focused specifically uh, on on that. Um, but as an introduction, um, I would like to start uh, with a very important uh, group of hashkafic points. And I guess in this sense, it'll be a mirror for not only this week's year, but next week's year. And then I would like to interweave both halacha uh, and hashkafa. They're not the same thing, and they shouldn't be weighted the same, but I think on many topics, especially a topic like this, it is absolutely crucial uh, that we discuss both. Uh, and as we shall see, uh, and this is a, you know, a kind of a, a meta uh, theme of mine, which is not mine uniquely, it's a masorah that I have for my own rebellion, you know, the most authentic hashkafos are those which flow from and coalesce with the uh, halacha. So to show the interplay between them, I think, is incredibly, incredibly important. And I want to begin um, with some of the hashkafa, and then I guess you could say part two of today's shir will be uh, halacha. And uh, I, if I could predict, I would s- predict that next week's shir will be the inverse. We'll start with halacha uh, and end with hashkafa. Not because I'm trying to be cute, I just think it will work out um, in terms of uh, pedagogically. So if you turn your attention to the sheet, for those who are on Zoom, uh, you should have screen sharing. And for those who have sheets, or if not, please look on with somebody. Uh, again, if you're on Zoom, please uh, mute yourself. Um, I want to start with source number one. Um, and source number one and source number two really go together. And from the previous generation, uh, certainly in America, but really the world, uh, you know, among the, and if not, if arguably the two biggest Gedolei Hador, were Soloveitchik and Moshe Feinstein. And they haven't been related, they were cousins, on Rav, 
Soloveitchik's mother's side, she was a Feinstein. They were also very, very close and uh, revered each other. Uh, and in many areas, they were the same. In many areas, they were different. They were definitely not uh, identical, for sure. But on this particular topic, in completely different uh, contexts, they actually both go out of their way to make the same point, which I think is a really important way uh, for us to speak, just to set the tone, and then we'll dig even a little bit deeper. Senator Soloveitchik, this is uh, in many different places, but I, I gave it to you in one particular source, from one particular essay. Senator Soloveitchik, you have to realize... For all the differences, and as we shall see in the continuation, there may have been no one more eloquent than Rav Soloveitchik who described the differences between men and women. Uh, we live in a current generation which is intentionally trying to blur the differences, even biologically now, which is beyond something that I think any of us could have even comprehended a few years ago. Um, but Rav Soloveitchik certainly uh, was uh, not from that way of thinking at all. He was a very as we'll see very shortly, incredibly eloquent in describing what he thought were the essential differences between men and women. And yet, and yet, it's very important to stress, and I think it's a good way to start, is what both he and Moshe both make the point when we first read from Salvechik. Source number one, that from the perspective of halacha, men and women enjoy an equal status, have the same worth as far as their humanitas, if you prefer Latin, uh, is concerned. That is to say, as he explains, both men and women are created equally, B'Tselem Elohim, they're both part of the same bris, the same covenant, you know, that was given at Har Sinai. The, the destiny of the Jewish people, you know, which ultimately leading to Geula, that's no less for women than it is for men. The innate spiritual desire to be close to Hashem, to crave and search for Hashem, who they want to be close to, who Hashem wants to be close with. All of that, says their Soloveitchik, men and women are absolutely equal. There may be differences, and again, I'm not, uh, it could very well be that from, uh, Educational and constitutional law in America, separate is not equal. That could be. But from a halachic, philosophical perspective, in Judaism, women may be separate, but they're absolutely equal. It's interesting that uh, Rav Moshe Feinstein makes the exact same point in his own beautiful way of source number two. Uh, this is a very interesting tshuva that was sent to him by Rabbi Kelimer, who was most famous for many decades being the rabbi in West Hempstead. But before that, he had been the rabbi in Boston and Brookline. If I'm not mistaken, I forgot the date, but I think this might have been in the 70s. I think. Um, and uh, I guess this was the beginnings of the feminist movement uh, picking up steam even within orthodoxy. And Rabbi Kellimer specifically wrote to Moshe Feinstein to ask him, what is your approach to feminism? This is a very, very famous tshuva of Moshe, which we'll probably quote again in a different context uh, next week. But after going through a lot of the halachic stuff, Rav Moshe, towards the end of the tshuva, mentions a second point. Which is, as he says here in the opening sentence of source number two, you have to realize that women, Nashim, are not at all chusos b'madregas ha-kadusha me'anashim. Exactly the opening sentence of Salvechik says Rav Moshe Feinstein the same thing. From a kadusha perspective, women are absolutely no less whatsoever, not at all, than men. Tal'inyin ha-kadusha, shavot la'anashim, tal'inyin shaychas ha-chiv b'mitzvos. Said Rav Moshe that when it comes to our essential Mchuyavut, right? The idea of being Kadosh as a Jew is expressed in the fact that we are obligated in mitzvos. As I already told you, the whole purpose of today and tomorrow's shir is going to, and next week's shir is going to be discussing what are the differences. But the idea that there is an essential chiyuv that men and women have in mitzvos is exactly the same. And in Rav Moshe's way of looking at things, that obligation in mitzvos is the expression, or maybe better said, the outgrowth of the kedusha. And even though the, there are differences in which mitzvos men and women are obligated in, and yes, and we'll discuss this in detail as we go on, even a difference in the amount of mitzvos that men and women are commanded in, says Rav Moshe, again, it's really, he just says a little bit longer, and in Hebrew, or already said in English, but none of that is to indicate that women are less worth, of less worth. It's the exact same kedusha, and that's why women are, even if it's slightly different, also obligated to mitzvos. And he makes this point, this is Rav Moshe's main point, that 
Sinai and being chayv and mitzvos is the ultimate expression of Kedusha. And as he says here, second line, Gam l'nashim ne'emru kol de Kedusha. We won't read it for the sake of time inside, but he goes through with Moshe a number of different psukim. says, Moshe, all the psukim in the Chumash that describe Kedusha Yisrael, starting with the psukim in Har Sinai and beyond, they are all explicitly in some cases and implicitly in others, but all unquestionably equally applicable to men and women. And that just reiterates and underscores the point. And he will just read the final part of Rav Moshe's tshuva, where it's underlined again. When it comes to ultimate self-worth, men and women are 100% equal. We're going to discuss this next week. We won't get to that today. But we'll discuss next week the idea that even when women do mitzvahs that they're not obligated in, Ashkenazi tradition, which is what Rav Moshe accepts, is that they say the bracha of vitzivanu. They make the bracha. I don't know if anyone here doesn't make the bracha if you do mitzvos, right? So our Sephardi sisters may not. We'll discuss where that comes from and the controversy around that next week. But from Moshe's perspective, that indicates from a, that philosophically, again, this same point, that a man and a woman no less than one another, no more than one another, no better and no worse. Both say Asher Kirishanu Vitzivanu. And again, that's the link. Kirishanu and Vitzivanu. Because we're mitzuva, that shows that we were Mekudash. Because we're Mekudash, therefore we're Mekudash. And that is equally applicable to men and women, even about mitzvahs that women are not obligated in. As he says here, again, this is a teaser for next week's year, at the last line. So why, you'll ask, are there differences? Why is it that there's some mitzvahs that women may not be obligated in? Says Rav Moshe, Rakshu kula me'ezatami Hashem yizbarach, sharatzu lahakil anashim, etc. But lo mitzad griusa chas v'shalom. Says, for whatever reason, and we'll discuss that, that will be the hashkafa part of next week's year. Uh, part two of next week's year, the hashkafa of why the Torah may have made a difference in mitzvah observance between men and women. But says Rav Moshe, whatever that reason is, whether we think we've discovered it or we never discover it, says Rav Moshe, you shouldn't in any way be mistaken to think, and he adds, chas v'shalom. God forbid to think that that in any way indicates lesser value of women uh, to men. So that, I think, is an important statement. Maybe it's not necessary in this crowd. Maybe it is. Uh, but in the big wide world, it is certainly necessary uh, to underscore and I, I start with it because I believe it's true. And therefore, even if it wasn't necessary, it's always good to remind ourselves of things, as the Masil Sharm said, uh, the most obvious things are the ones that often need the most repetition. Uh, this is something that we should remind ourselves. You know, I, I would say, by the way, my own experience, and I've been, you know, uh, I started off my rabbinic career even when I was pre-rabbi in the Upper East Side of Manhattan in the Ramaz KJ community. So for those who know, uh, that's not exactly the same as being a rabbi in Ramat Chamish. Um, and I was in Riverdale and in Baltimore. So I've had, you know, I guess those are my four communities uh, in, the, in the 26 years I've been married. Uh, whatever that says about me and my, and my family, uh, but I've had exposure uh, to different types of communities. And I would say that it's true that there are sometimes, you know, I've received it, you know, women feeling attacked and, and belittled by halacha. Uh, but what I found, again, in my own experience, I'm not saying this is indicative, I can only speak personally, um, the more common problem is not that you know, people are antagonistic towards halacha because of whatever they misunderstand halacha stance about women are. It's that they sell themselves short. As you often have, women who are not as careful in halachic observance, they're not as ambitious in their religious life, they're not looking for Torah even when they have the time, they don't go to shul even when they don't have kids at home, etc., etc. And often, it's not because anyone else imposed it. It's because... They have absorbed, and maybe because they had bad teachers, uh, whatever the reasons are, but they've absorbed this misconception that Judaism and religion is not as important 
you know, Hashem cares less whether they are religious or not than care about their husband or their sons, right? So it's not, again, sometimes it's an attack that they feel, and maybe sometimes there are things that have been done or said that were wrong. I can't say that that's never happened. But I actually think that this is the most important, uh, it's not, so to speak, for men to know this, it's for women to know this, and not just because you'll hold yourself to a higher standard if you realize that what Hashem expects of you may be not exactly the same as it expects of your husband. What he expects of your daughters is not exactly the same as he expects from your sons. But he expects it. It's no less important. And that's an absolutely, absolutely critical thing. I'll just indulge one more uh, digression before we continue. Uh, my oldest the child is a daughter, as many of you know. Uh, and a little while later, she had a brother. So like every family, we deal with all those kind of things. Uh, but at some point, her brother became three. And he got a yarmulke, and he got tzitzis. And she was jealous. She's older. She never got those things. And I'll never forget when she asked, you know, could she wear tzitzis? David Gottlieb, oh my gosh, I was like going to have a heart attack. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. Anyways, I called my Rebbe. He wasn't home, his wife answered. And I was about to say, or maybe I even said, you know, can I speak to you, or can I, when can I speak to your husband? And then I just thought to myself, I'm calling about a Shiloh regarding my daughter. What am I running to Rabbi Rosenzweig for? I have Rebbe Rosenzweig. So I said, you know, let me ask you, forget him, let me ask you. And I, from that moment on, you know, for the next few years when we had certain questions, she became my post-second. Uh, absolutely, I didn't even bother looking for him. I would just call her. And I, again, without getting into the details, she, did, she told me not to put tzitzis on, don't worry. Um, lest anyone be confused. But her main point, her main point, she said certain things which we didn't do because they just were not realistic, but her main point, which I hope we accepted, was you need to communicate to your daughter that Hashem and you and your wife expect no less from her than from your sons. Everything she has to do is just as important as what they have to do. And that's exactly, again, the point that I'm trying to convey. And again, I think tragically often uh, is missed uh, in, in this discussion. Um, to underscore the broader point of the significance, um, obviously we are familiar with the fact that in source number three, many of you already know this, a very, very famous Gemara, it's not just that uh, women are equal. Women have had, you know, if not equal, then uh, maybe even more than equal, uh, outsized impact on Jewish history. For example, source number three, the famous line, Bishar Nashim Tzidkanios, we were nigalumi mitzrayim, right? There are many examples throughout history where women didn't just, you know, get schlepped along equally. You know, we kept them on the boat. We didn't throw them off. More than that is that the women were driving the boat. They were the ones who, in fact, in many cases, are the prime uh, movers. We will discuss a little bit later in the year. I hope we'll have time by the end to discuss the halachic concept of afhin hayub osahanes, why women have to hear megillah and other things like that. And at least according to one opinion, which we will see, according to one opinion, it's because in many of the critical stories in Jewish history, such as Hanukkah, Purim, Pesach, a woman was the prime mover in bringing the geula. And the Pesach example is the one that I just mentioned here, but it's not limited uh, to Pesach. So it's not just that women are of equal uh, halachic, or if you prefer the fancy uh, philosophical word, ontological worth, that's all true, that's what we started with, but it's the fact that women... You know, in Rosalvitching, in a different context, made this point that maybe the most important thing a person can do is to change and alter and save the destiny of Klai Yisrael. And women are just as capable, and in fact, over history, have done that as much, if not more so, than men. And you don't have to go back to ancient biblical history. One could easily argue, maybe, there, maybe you could disagree with this, but you could make the argument easily that the most important Jew of the last 200 years was Sarshnir. Now, maybe there are other people who are, could vie for that, but you certainly, I'm not sure how many people are on the list or even realistic candidates for the most important Jew in the last 100, 200 years. 
on anyone's list have to be Sarshanira, and my first, my gut instinct is that she would win. So it's not just, you know, uh, Esther Hamalka, and it's not just the Nachim Tzidkani, it's a Mitzrayim. It has been always true uh, in Jewish history. And we have Psukim both in the Chumash, where we distinguish between, you know, Beis Yisrael and Beis Yaakov, but also in Mishle, the very famous post, like source number four, of Shema B'ni Musar Avicha, and I think this is important as we pivot to kind of uh, part two, not the halachic part yet, but even part two of my initial uh, introduction, if you will, or the hashkafic point, which is that we've started off by talking about the equal worth of men and women. On the other hand, not only do they have, not on the other hand, additionally, not only do they have equal worth, they have the equal ability to impact on Jewish history, but, and here I guess would be a pivot, Equal, as I said before, does not mean identical. And one of the main sources for that approach in Yiddishkeit is this very famous pasuk in Mishlei. Shma b'ni musar avicha, v'altitosh mecha. And obviously, if you felt that men and women were identical, the pasuk, you know, could be half, you know, as long, uh, and would probably, you know, whatever you would say about women, and fathers and mothers would be the same. And yet here we have fathers and mothers being distinguished, Father is being referred to as Musr. A child is being taught, don't, you know, veer from, but rather listen to, be obedient to the Musr of your father. And don't, how are you? And don't veer from the Torah of your mother. So first of all, if you would have asked somebody who didn't know the Pasuk, you know, men and women are going to be treated separately, but one's going to be Musr, one's going to be Torah. Which one would be which? There's nobody who would have guessed that Torah is going to be the mother and Musr is the the father. But that's what Shlomo Melech says in Mishle. And uh, there's... I mean, I'm sure we could give at least one, Ms. Feinberg could tell us, maybe multiple shurim, just on all the mafarshim of Mishle on this. I'm sure I don't even know them all. But I want to focus on one modern uh, meditation, if you will, or interpretation of this pasuk. And it comes from one of my most fam- favorite, favorite sources. Um, it goes all the way back to 1978, which was a few years ago. Uh, and there's a very famous hesped that Rav Salavecha gave for his machatenista which you know is a uniquely Jewish word, not only because it's in Yiddish, uh, but because you know, in English you don't really have a unique word to describe that phenomenon. Um, you know, who, you know, the person whose child, your child married. Right? So you could say in-laws, but that's also your mother-in-law or your own father-in-law. So there's not a unique word, I as far as I know in English, to describe that relationship, but there is a unique word in, uh, in Yiddish. The Machatenista, star of Salvechik's oldest daughter, uh, married the son of the Tolner Rebbe in Boston whose last name was Torsky, and when his machatenista, uh, his son-in-law's mother, died, the tone the rabbits in Boston, so if I'm not mistaken, on the Shloshim, uh, he gave a hesped for his machatenista, which was published in 1978 in Tradition uh, Magazine, or Journal, which is a very well-known journal, which at that point was 17 years old. Um, and uh, he, it's, to me, one of the most uh, important and underappreciated and often not studied enough a text, period, any time in Jewish history, in general, but specifically about the different roles of men and women. And it's interesting because we don't have that much from Rav Soloveitchik that gets into the nitty-gritty uh, of the differences, a topic which was, you know, of course, at the second half of the 20th century, one of the most important topics there was, and he was, of course, such an important leader at that time. But this, to me, as far as I know, uh, is the, the most involved and most powerful uh, source we have from Rav Soloveitchik himself uh, on the topic. And again, it, many of you uh, may have, my wife for sure has heard me quote parts of this because uh, there are parts of this that we'll get to that I've quoted in various speeches, because I think it has be- 
importance beyond the limited topic that we're discussing, the narrative we're discussing. But nevertheless, again, I, I couldn't resist. I kept on, you know, trying to like only do a little bit, a little bit. I kept on adding and adding and adding. And again, this is only a fraction of the actual essay, uh, but it's so, so, so important. So let's, let, let's read a few of the highlights here. Again, he's, he's using the opportunity where he's speaking about a particular woman, his machatenista, he used that as a springboard to talk in general about the role of women and the differences between men and women. Says Rav Salvechik in the opening part of this section, source number five, people are mistaken in thinking that there's only one Masora, and only one Masora community, the community of the fathers, right? Karkeavos, Moshe Kibotara Misinai, and then he gave it to Yeshua, to the Zakanim, da 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 da, right? All men. And that's the Masora, that's Karkeavos, we believe in that. Everything we do now is based on that Masora. Salvechik's not denying the importance of that Masora. He says, but it's a mistake to think that that's the only Masorah. We have two Masorot, of the fathers and that of the mothers. There's a Masorah of the Mahos, not only of the fathers. What is the difference, Asher Salvechik, between these two Masoros? Which again, as he, you see, he, his, his anchor is the Pasuk and Mishlei. What's the difference between Musra, Avicha, and Torah's Imecha? So he first starts by talking about the father. Now you can say because he's male... That's fine, I don't, that wouldn't, I don't think that would be a problem if that's why he started about the father, but also because it's easier to define, which is something he's going to admit in a moment. And again, since I think fathers are no less important than mothers, um, and I don't think that women are any more important than men, uh, it's important, uh, maybe I'll give a share to the men, and we'll focus on the, this role that he describes to the fathers, but the kitzer, the short version is, and I am mindful of the time because we have a lot to do, uh, is that he basically sees... Um, the fathers is primarily being the ones who convey issues of discipline, the formality of life, the formality of Judaism, uh, the more intellectual side of Judaism. And again, before I go any further, I'll, I'll just point out it's obvious, but it's still even the obvious things need to be pointed out. He's obviously speaking in categories and in stereotypes. Now, he believes it, it's true. If he didn't believe it was true, he wouldn't say it. But I have no doubt he would also believe, and we all know this intuitively and from our own experiences, that it's not one or the other. And there are many men who have you know, what he's going to describe as feminine qualities, and there are many women who have what he's describing as male qualities. But speaking in typologies or categories, what is a man represent and what is a man most often be, supposed to convey? So he sees that in discipline uh, and conceptually, etc., etc. If you look in the middle, he admits, and I think it's a very important and it's a very powerful admission on his part, you know, when he says, what kind of Torah does the mother give then? I admit that I'm not able to define precisely the Masoretic role of Jewish mother. Now, I would add, this is Gottlieb's editorial, I think that it's not only because it's harder to know because he's intuiting it as opposed to looking at an explicit text though he was for the chiyuvim of a father, but also because, as you shall see, the very nature of what he's describing as the mother's role, and we're speaking stereotypically, is by nature and by definition more amorphous not less important, but more amorphous. So the very fact, to me, it's not just like, well, maybe he didn't have enough of a vocabulary to explain it. It's that the nature of it is that it is harder to define. But again, no less important. So Cesar Soloveitchik himself, he says, like, and this is true about many things in life, right? we can't always define it, but we can describe it in the, or you know, give impressions based on our experiences. So he says here, let me draw my own experiences. Instead of me giving you, you know, abstract definitions of what the role of the mother is, let me talk to you about my mother, as a classic Jewish mother. 
And again, he, it's so beautiful to see this meditation. I mean, if he was just an average person, it would be beautiful to see someone talk about the mother the way he does. When you think about one of the Gedoli Yisrael speaking about a mother this way, it's obviously even more meaningful. And I, I didn't give you everything, but I gave you some of the highlights. And he says here, I used to have long conversations with my mother, and he actually, the part that I didn't include, he says how you know a lot of the conversations are really more her talking and me listening. Uh, she was a very big instructor to him, evidently. Uh, and he, you know, when he was a young boy, he talks about her. Again, she had a very traditional role. I used to watch her arranging the house. But it wasn't just that she was a balabasta. She was, and he, he definitely doesn't downplay that at all, but he talks about how she used to daven regularly. Right? How many women daven regularly? She used to daven regularly, and her children knew that. Her children would observe her davening. He talks about what, how powerful it was to see her daven. More than that, she used to learn and review the Parsha every Friday night. How many women do that? She was way ahead of her time. He was in the early 1900s. Way ahead of her time. Uh, learning the Parsha every Friday night. He describes it. He remembers the tune that she used to sing when she would read the Parsha every Friday night. I still remember, he says, the nostalgic tune. I learned from her very much. And here we have to read, I'm not paraphrasing, I have to read every single word of this with you, because every word of the next two paragraphs is gold, where it's underlined. Most of all, he says, from my mother I learned, that Judaism expresses itself not only in the formal compliance with the law, which we saw before was the father's role, but also in a living experience. She taught me that there is a flavor, a scent, a warmth to mitzvos. I learned from her the most important thing in life, to feel the presence of the Almighty and the gentle pressure of His hand resting on my frail shoulders. Without her teachings, I would have grown up a soulless being, dry and insensitive. So before we see how he applies this he takes one example, Shabbos, we'll get to in a second. I need to make sure we all understand what we just read and how important and how powerful it is. So first of all, what did he say? As opposed to the fathers who he describes stereotypically as being the more formal, disciplined aspects of Judaism, Cesar Soloveitchik, what the mothers convey, what his mother personally conveyed to him, was not just formal compliance with the halacha, but the lived experience. Or you might say the ruchnius the soul of the halacha, the spiritual experience of being a Jew, and specifically what he describes is the feeling of closeness with Hashem, the actually feeling Hashem as part of someone who I'm close with, not just doing the halachos in a dry rote way, but it being a spiritually nourishing way where we feel close to Hashem. Salvaj says he got that uh, from his mother. Um, he also says um, that this is the most important thing, and that if he hadn't gotten this, you know, who would he be? He, 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 would be he, he would be a nobody. Now, it's important that anybody would say such a thing. It's important that a good Yisrael would say such a thing. But it's particularly striking, you need to appreciate that Erosal of all people said such a thing. Because as I've often stressed, and every time I give over this piece, I stress the same point, there's probably, not that I can think of, maybe Jewish history, so not in modern Jewish history, a good Yisrael who was closer and learned more with his father than Rosh did with his father. Rosh never went to yeshiva. He never went to yeshiva. But if I'm not mistaken, he learned 22 masechtos of Gemara from beginning to end with his father. I'm, just in case you're wondering, that's an enormous amount. I am not sure of any other example in modern or pre-modern history that even comes close to that. And those who were, that's not my generation, I got to YU year, literally the year of Salvechik died, but those who were in his shir, certainly in the younger years, they talk all the time about every time they would do a sugya. I heard from my father, who heard from his father, 
it was on his mouth all the time. You cannot, you cannot overstate how influential his father was. It's not like someone who had, you know, a really warm mother and a distant father. That exists sometimes. That wasn't this. He was unbelievably close to his father who had an incredible influence on him. And yet, and yet, it's Dafka, that very same Rav Soloveitchik, who was so close with his father, who learned so much from his father, who said that what, I, what the most important thing in life is, is not what I learned from my father. The most important thing in life is what I learned from my mother. Without whom, as he says, I would have been a dry, soulless being. But that feeling of the Ruchnius, of feeling close to Hashem, the experience of Judaism, he says, I got from her. And he's, it's, again, it's so beautiful, it's worth another two minutes. The last paragraph, he describes Shabbos. He says, the laws of Shabbos, again, it's just an illustration, it's always good to have an example, it'll, it'll bring it home a little bit, he concretizes it. He says, the laws of Shabbos, the halachos of Shabbos, for example, they were passed on to me by my father. That's Musr Avicha. And he says in a different context that Musr is discipline. You know that's so the fathers are more discipline oriented, etc. Shabbos is a living entity, as a queen, that was revealed to me by my mother. That's part of Torah's imecha. The father knew about the Shabbos. The mothers live the Shabbos, experience her presence, and perceived her beauty and splendor. The fathers taught generations how to observe Shabbos. Mothers taught generations how to greet the Shabbos and how to enjoy her twenty-four hour presence. Now, it's not a question about which one is more important. One without the other is half of Judaism. They're both absolutely, absolutely critical. You don't even have to go as far as what Soloveitchik did, where he described one being the most important thing. You don't have to go that far even to see how important this is, and again, how significant um, when we talk about you know, the difference, you know, sometimes the second, and again, maybe this is our American background, for those of us who are American, but the second we hear someone say, well, different, so our, our mind immediately subconsciously assumes, you know, and therefore not equal. Right? Again, I, I can't imagine a more eloquent description of both difference, but equality of importance uh, than this particular essay. And again, for those who can get a hold of it, it's available online in PDF. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's really worth reading the whole thing because it is so, so inspiring. I thought it just one, is one example of where you see that this idea, it's, 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 it wouldn't be fair or totally accurate even to completely separate these two. That in fact, it's not just that well, there's formal halacha and there's lived experience, but in fact, sometimes those actually overlap and the lived experience, the role of the mothers, can actually influence the halacha. So that's a very, very big topic, which we're not going to really get into, but just as one example, in source number six, you have the Maharil. This is from hundreds and hundreds of years ago. This is not feminist. This is not even pre-feminist. This is not pre-pre-pre-pre-feminist. This is hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Said the Maharil, he was being asked a certain halachic question. And it seemed like the, what the women were doing in the community was not what the questioner thought the halacha should be. And says the Maharil, source number six, leave the women alone. Even if they didn't go to school, they didn't go to yeshiva, they didn't learn. B'nai Nevi'o saying, which is a way of saying that people intuit the right thing to do. And from their youth, the women of our community, they're experts in the halacha. Well, how did they know that if they didn't go to school? Hundreds of years ago, women were not going to school, clearly. Their mothers taught them. So again, nowadays, and I'm not saying our topic, not this week, not next week, we're not discussing women in Torah learning. Maybe that'll be a future series. Obviously, things have changed. We, we discussed the importance of Sarshanira, and I don't think anyone wants to go back to the way it used to be. But no one should think that just because once upon a time it was quote-unquote only this lived experience, that that was not valued or was less important. On the contrary, here we have a very important posseik, paskining halachic shayla, based on what women are actually doing, not based on a source, admitting that the reason that they're actually doing it is because that's what their mothers actually did. 
I think that is incredibly uh, significant, just as an example. One or two more things before we get to the second f- final part of the shir, um, is you know, some of the well-known uh, sources, we'll just do three of them, um, that also just describe not only uh, separate but equal, uh, but here I want to acknowledge, again, I'm not saying that there aren't counter-sources, uh, but we should just at least be aware of these three sources, and which is not just separate but equal, but maybe separate but women are better. Um, and source number seven, the very famous idea of Bini Yisera. The idea, again, that there are different types of intellectual abilities, even in, in Hebrew and in, in the Hebraic and Mishnaic Hebrew, we talk about Chachma and Bina and Da'as, and this is, that's what Chabad stands for, for those who are not familiar. Again, not our topic, but Bina, insight, understanding, that is certainly one of the highest forms of, uh, of uh, knowledge. Uh, and the, Gemara, the, excuse me, the Medrash here very famously says that women are given more Bina than men. And in fact, the, the proof for this that the uh, Medrash brings is the difference between boys and girls in terms of bar and bat mitzvah. Right? Girls are bat mitzvah at 12. Why do boys have to wait till the 13? So specifically, the context here has to do with nidarim, but it's not limited to nidarim. Right? It's obvious. Right? If, we, if the assumption is you know, that, uh, you know, as we sometimes say in fancy English, you know, now you've reached the age of maturity. Well, don't we all know the truth? Right? Girls are usually, usually yeah, it's all, there are always exceptions, but girls are usually maturity, younger age, than boys. So the Medrash sees that not only is indicative of your sons and daughters when they were 12 and 13, but that that very mechanism, the same reason why your daughter will mature quicker than your son, is something that will actually stay with them when they're both mature, when they're both 40 and 50. But that idea of Bina not only comes first to uh, women, but in fact there is more of it. Uh, that women have. Source number eight, if you turn over the page, uh, is an incredible story. Uh, it's a tragic one, and, uh, but the, it's the upshot, which is important for us. The Medrash there, source number eight, describes a very, very pious man, a chassid, who was married to a super-duper pious woman, a chassid and a chassida who were married. And unfortunately, for many years, they didn't have children. And they decided to, uh, to divorce, which even now sometimes happens, but certainly was more common uh, in, in, in earlier generations, that people who couldn't have children would divorce. And as it so happened, um, says, the, uh, says the Medrash, they each got remarried. So what happened? Uh, this tzaddik married a wicked woman. He had been married to a very pious woman, but his second wife was very wicked. And what happened? He became wicked. She had a negative influence on him. But then the wife got remarried, and she married a wicked man, and made him into a tzaddik. So what's the upshot, says the Medrash? Ha-hakol min ha-isha. Whether it's in marriage, or I would say more broadly, in the home, in fact, it's really not just equal and important, but I think, uh, says the Medrash, the more dominant influence is actually the wife's, not the husband's. I, I can't resist from telling you a story. Um, I may have told this before, I'm not sure, but here it really is, it's actually on topic. Um, it's one of my favorite uh, stories. Um, I thought I was being very clever, so you'll see if you agree with me or not. Uh, but years ago, when we still lived in Baltimore, I believe my son Yaakov, who is now 22, was in first grade. Uh, and I used to put him to bed, like I did all my children when they were younger, and tell them stories, and make Shema a whole big thing. That was my role for many, many years. Um, I, can't, I lost kind of how many times I woke up four hours later. Uh, very, very precarious when you're a tired and busy person to lie down with your kids. You, you never know when you're going to wake up. Uh, and that's the deepest sleep you could possibly imagine. You're like, even if you wake up 20 minutes later, you're done for the night. There's just nothing productive happening uh, after that. But it was very, very... I, I hope my children treasure some of those memories as much as I do. Um, 
And uh, I remember once um, my son Yaakov had a question for me based on what he had learned in school. That was a very good question. Uh, the background is that in our family, I think it's still true, but it definitely was true, that any time the kids asked you know, a difficult, for something difficult or something that I, we might not want to give them, and they would ask me, the answer was always the same. You have to ask mommy. You have to ask mommy. And sometimes I'd follow up with the question, you know, like, why? And they always got the same answer from me, which they knew already, because mommy's the boss. Okay, so this is the background. So Yaakov says to me, you know, you always tell me, ask mommy, mommy's the boss. But they were learning Chumash Bereshis, and they get to the story with Adam and Chava, and they both get punished from eating the Eitz And what is one of Chava's punishments? So the Pasuk says, V'hu yim sholbach. Right, that Adam will rule over Chava. So now is not the topic, time to discuss what that means. But clearly the Rebbe conveyed, or my son as a first grader understood, and it's certainly possible that it was the latter, that it means really now Abba's the boss. It's not a bad reading. Who Yim Shobach? So I thought that's a pretty good question for a six-year-old or seven-year-old. You know, Stira. So I thought, I thought for a brief moment, I said, Yaakov, you've now discovered the difference between Torah Shabbat and Torah Shabbat Because <laughs> it's true that many viewers are in Torah Shabbat But let me tell you the Torah Shabbat of the Jewish people. I don't know a single Jewish home in which the father's the boss. <laughs> Okay, so this is exactly this uh, medrash in source number eight. The dominant influence in the home uh, is and should be uh, the mom. Source number nine, with this we will... Uh, Where ke- is that from? Sorry. Oh, sorry. Source number eight is Bracious Rabbah. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. It's okay. I'm, it's okay. I can send you a sheet afterwards. Bracious. But it's Bracious Rabbah, uh, Parsha Yitzayin. And in source number nine, which is a medrash Sefrei in Bamidbar... So um, here, just again, a broader spiritual point um, about the spiritual, you know, some level spiritual superiority of women. Rabbi Nassan says, Yafe koach nashim mi koach anashim. That in some ways, the koach, the potential and the ability of women spiritually is greater than that of men. And the example here specifically actually relates to Eretz Yisrael. And it quotes a pasuk that describes the men whining and complaining. And even though they were in, in the desert, you know, take us back to Egypt. And the proof text which this Medrash is, is working off of, which is the story of Benot Salafchad, who we know, you know had tremendous love of Eretz Yisrael and wanted a, a, their own portion uh, in the land as well. And again, you could learn, Benot Salafchad is an incredibly important and somewhat complex story. There's so many things you can learn from it, but you could limit it and keep it isolated. What I want you to appreciate is that the Medrash is distilling that that story shouldn't be read only in isolation. You should read it on its own merits. But you also have to look at a broader point. It's paradigmatic, says the Medrash, that at least in some way, I don't know if it means in every way, but at least in some ways, Yafa koach nashim mikoach anashim. Okay, so Ad Khan I think was important, but Ad Khan the Hashkafa, let's do 15-20 minutes of the Halacha, and then we will be done with part one. So with all of that background in mind, um, that we believe in separate but equal. So what is the separate? In what way are women different than men uh, in mitzvahs? And again, just to recap for those who came in a little late, even though the, the broader t- uh, title is Gender Differences in Halacha, that could refer and really does refer to 20 different topics, 30 different topics. Uh, we are limiting ourselves today and next week to one specific topic, which is big enough, which is the specific differences between men and women when it comes to mitzvah uh, obligations. And what we will also see next week is mitzvah opportunities. Even if a woman may not be obligated in certain mitzvahs, can she do them? What is the status of women's voluntary mitzvahs? That's all coming next week, so you should come back. But, um, but for now, let's see the background so we can sketch out, or at least we'll know what we're talking about. What differences are there? So source number 10 is the source of everything. 
It is from Kedusha Dav Chavtet, and it's a Mishnah. Says the Mishnah, some of you may have seen this inside, but you've all heard of it, even if you've never seen it inside before, says the Mishnah, source number 10, that there are different categories of mitzvos. The first is a distinction in relation to time. Mitzvos asei shehazman grama, says the Mishnah, men are obligated, and women are exempt. As opposed to mitzvos asei shalohazman grama, where there is not that time component, then men and, we, men and women uh, are equal. Now what does it mean, zman grama? So I didn't put this on the sheet, but you should be aware that there is actually a... If you could just mute yourself if you're on the Zoom, thank you. Um, it, it, just to point out that uh, there is actually a very important machlok at Rishonim on how to define zman grama. I'm just going to share it with you, but we're not going to explore the implications of it. Rashi says that we should take the words of the Mishnah you know, pretty literally. Zman goreim shetavo. That's Rashi. That it's a mitzvah that the causal component, what creates the mitzvah, is a certain time. Why do we eat matzah on Pesach? Because something happened during that time, on the 15th of Nisan, so the zman is gorem, it causes that the mitzvah kicks in. That kind of mitzvah, women are potter from, they're exempt from. The Rambam actually has a different definition. The Rambam seems to say it doesn't really mean zman gorem, but rather zman mugbal. There are some times where you're obligated, sometimes you're not. Sukkah is only these uh, seven days. Matzah is only these uh, days. Doesn't necessarily mean that zman time caused the mitzvah. It's just limited in time. Okay? There may be halachic significance to that distinction. There may be hashkafic significance. We're not really going to get into some of the halachic differences, but the hashkafic uh, implications of that we will see next week. But just so you should know in terms of just what the words mean, it's actually a machloket. But that's a category. Mitzvah says zman grama. Women are according to this Mishnah, exempt from them, but as low as Mangram, if they're not time-bound, or time-caused, or time-limited, however you want to translate it, then women are obligated. And then the second half of the Mishnah, which is also very important, is that that's all when it comes to positive mitzvos. What about negative mitzvos? The chol mitzvos lotase. But all the mitzvos lotase, men and women are equally prohibited, except for three. One has to do with kohanim, a female kohen, does not have the same limitations about going to the cemetery and things like that that a male Kohen does. And the other two have to do with using a razor and shaving off your penis or your beard, which uh, the, uh, the Mishnah assumes uh, that since uh, biologically speaking, that's not going to be relevant at all to most women anyway, so that's not something that is obligatory on them. So if we say that there are 365 lotases, so it's true that some may only be limited to Kohanim and some may be limited to Eretz Yisrael and some may be limited to the Mikdash, but from the perspective of uh, gender, so there's only three differences. Okay? There's only three differences. Now, before we go on, I just want to ask you a question. Um, this, when it comes to mitzvot, though, there seems to be a much broader category. Zman grama, women are exempt from. And if not, then they're obligated in. I'm just wondering, you know, if you actually know the answer to this question, so then hold off for a second. But if you'd never learned this before, impressionistically, how many mitzvahs do you think there are that are different between men and women? What do you think? What, if you just, what would be your guess? What do you think the average person would think? How many differences? What's your impression? You grew up, most, many of you grew up from your whole life, and if you didn't, there's no one who turned from yesterday in the room. Um, how many differences are there, you think, between men and women when it comes to mitzvahs? What would you, just, just curious what people's impression is. I don't mean between living in Israel and not living in Israel, or the base of Megdash and not the base of Megdash. So we start by dividing into positive and negative. Yes, yeah, so how, how many positive mitzvahs do you think there are differences? Yes, Aliza. Ten, okay, had one guess was ten. Higher, lower, anyone? Higher. Give me a number. 
How many jelly beans in the bowl? Fifty. Probably a lot more. Okay. Who wants to go higher than fifty? Can I get a hundred? Do get a hundred? You think lower? Okay. How much lower? I don't know, but it's a lower number than we think. Okay. So the air. I think. I think that most people tend to think impressionistically. This is some huge category. As far as I know, and I, I might be off by one or two, but at most that. And I think I just, I think I might just be right. Um, I think the answer is eight. Again, there are differences between living in Eretz and not living in Eretz and things like that. I'm not describing those. But I, I made a quick list. Shema, Tzitzis, Tefillin, and there's two Tefillin, so those count as two, Rosh and Yad, Shofar, Lulav, Sukkah, and Sfirat Omer. And even Sfirat Omer is a debate. But assuming that women are exempt from Omer, from counting the Omer, which is how we pass in the Shulchan Aruch, so that's eight. Now that's not to minimize it, but you know it's it's not the you know the iceberg that sank the Titanic. Right? It's a pretty pretty small number: three low tasses and maybe eight assays. Now, given that fact, turn your attention to uh, source number twelve. Um, uh, let's, let's skip that. I might even have made a mistake there. But let's skip to number three. So we're, we're skipping now, just because it's late. The Gemara explains how we get this from. Where do we know this from? And the answer, I'll just tell you, outside is a very non-compelling uh, rational source. Right? A lot of halacha is based on svara and analytics and describing things and compelling logic. Uh, but as we probably know, uh, not just about topics relating to women in general, there's a lot of halacha that's Masorah, based on Masorah. And it's a drusha, and the pasuk could be read this way, but it was read that way, an extra letter. You know, so if we have a mesorah, that that's how you read the pasuk, and it teaches us a halacha, so we accept that. You wouldn't say that that's the most compelling, rational reason to do something. But okay, we, we trust the mesorah. So that's the type of answer the Gemara gives. Basically, that we have a, the Gemara understands that women are exempt from tefillin. That's the basis of binyanav, so to speak. And then the Gemara quotes a pasuk where you see that the whole Torah is compared to tefillin. So just like women are exempt from tefillin, which the Gemara assumes is because it's Zman Grama, so too, says the Gemara, women are exempt from all time-bound mitzvos like tefillin. Okay, that's the whole enchilada. That's it. Right? Again, not some broad philosophical... We'll see some philosophical explanations for why that might have been. And that's next week. But if you want to know the halachic answer, it's very dry, very technical, and very boring. The halachic answer is because there's a drusha that learns all mitzvahs and Grama from Tefillin. However, take a look at source number 13. If I told you that the number is 8, doesn't it seem like there are actually a lot more time-bound mitzvahs than 8? That's why you're confused. So the Gemara itself is aware of this. And the Gemara points out that there are all sorts of exceptions in both directions. There are Zman, Grama, the women are obligated in. Who could think of one? Pesach, Matzah, good. Right? There are others, but that's good. That's one example. And there are examples of mitzvahs that are not Zman, Grama, the women are not obligated in. What are examples of those? Anyone know? Can you think of one? Sweetheart. Women are obligated to daven. Right. Uh, you are obligated to daven. Yeah. Learning. The, the, the mitzvah of davening is equally applicable to women. That's an explicit mishnah. The details of davening may be different, but the women are obligated to daven. But what someone said before? 
learning, the mitzvah of Talmud Torah, right? Talmud Torah is the ultimate non-zman grama. You're supposed to learn every day, all day. And yet, again, this is not our topic, we could give a separate series of shirim on this topic, but women are exempt from the formal mitzvah of learning Torah. So there are exceptions. The Gemara itself is aware of that, even though the Mishnah seems to be very unambiguous. Zman grama, women are exempt. Not zman grama, women are obligated. But the Mishnah spoke in categorical terms. The Gemara itself acknowledges that that's too broad a generalization. It's too sweeping. Says the Gemara, you're right, it's just a rule of thumb. But it's just a klal, the ain lemedim in a klal, source number 13. You're right, it's a rule of thumb. If you come across a mitzvah, and you're not sure if women are obligated or not, so the first question to ask is, is it zman grama or not? But that's not necessarily the last question. That's not necessarily the final word. It's a good rule of thumb. But it's not necessarily going to be true. There are exceptions in each direction. And let's just see some of the sources. This is how we'll finish today. Let's see some of the sources for the exceptions in both directions. We're just going to finish in two more minutes. These are the last sources on your sheet. So for example, one category of mitzvos that women are obligated in, even though these are unquestionably time-related mitzvos, Zman Grama, you would have thought the woman should be exempt from. But they are obligated anyway. So one category are a mitzvah where even though it's time-bound, time is my grandma, but there's some other factor, some other drosha, which says women should be obligated anyway. So for example, source number 14, all of the positive mitzvahs, most notably Kiddush, of Shabbos. Says the Gemara source number 14, women are obligated in Kiddush. It's talking about Friday night Kiddush specifically. Nashim chayavos b'kiddush hayom dvar Torah. Midaraisa, a woman is obligated in Kiddush every bit as much as a man. And the Gemara immediately asks, well, why should that be? Shabbos only comes once a week. Some of us wish it came more often, some of us think even that's too much, right? But it only comes once a week, it's a very Zman Grama. It's Zman Grama, it's Zman Mugbal, it's Zman everything. Shabbos, the ultimate time-related mitzvah. Why are women obligated? So says the Gemara, because we know there were two Dibros. One of the differences between Yitro and Veschana, one of the most famous differences when it comes to Shabbos, is it Zachor? Is Yom Shabbos Akacho? Or Shamor? And what's the difference? Zachor are the positive mitzvos. Shamor is not to do work on Shabbos. So why are there the differences? So the Gemara very famously says, and we sing about this in Lechadodi, Zachor v'shamor, bedibor echad. Something that no human being could do, and no human being could hear. Really, it's a miracle. Only God could say two words at the same time. And only one time in history, or human beings able to hear two things simultaneously. Every time my kids have learned this, all four of them, I think, and so I remember even the most recent one, the first time they hear this, like, you didn't get it. You can almost do it. Especially Gottlieb's, we talk fast. You can almost do it. But it's impossible for a human being to say two things exactly simultaneously, and it would be impossible for a human being to hear it. It was a miracle. And what was the purpose of the miracle? God was flexing. You weren't impressed with Kriyas Yamsuf, so I'll show you another trick in the book, in the, in the bag. The answer is no, says the Gemara. It was teaching us an important halacha. There's no such thing as half Shabbos. Shabbos is indivisible. You cannot have the lotases of Shabbos and none of the beauty of Shabbos, none of the mitzvos. But if you think you can have all the beauty in the mitzvos and then go to work, it's also false. Shabbos is all or nothing. In the sense, again, theoretically, no one's perfect, but in terms of what, hashkafically, how we view Shabbos, halachically, kol yeshno be... Shmira, yeshno b'zchira. And therefore, says the Gemara, anyone who's obligated in the negative, in the not doing malacha, must be, must be, also obligated in the mitzvah saseh. And since women, we saw in the Mishnah, are equal to men when it comes to lotaseh, so we know women can't do malacha on Shabbos. 
it must be, says the Gemara, that therefore women, they must be also obligated, and that's the halacha, that's how we paskin, women are obligated in the mitzvahs of Shabbos because of this rule. So that's an example. There might be other examples of that, but that's one example. Another example, very famously, source number 15, it comes up three times in the Gemara. Someone previously had mentioned Pesach. Pesach might be of a different source, but Arba Kosot specifically, Mikra Megillah and Nerod Hanukkah. Women are obligated to light candles, uh, hear the Megillah, and drink the Forkoso. They're also obligated in matzah, but that might be for a different reason. But what's the reason of those three? Afhein hayubosahanes. Now what does that mean? So that's actually a machloket. Some say it means the women were also the beneficiaries of the miracle. They could have been killed. They were enslaved in Egypt. They would have died in the time of Esther. They were being persecuted horribly in the time of Hanukkah. And others say, this doesn't mean that they were the beneficiaries of the miracle, but they were the catalysts of the miracle, as we saw before, etc. So whichever one it means, but those are three holiday-related mitzvot where we say, even though it's time-bound, women are still going to be obligated. There are exceptions to the rule because of this overriding factor. And then if you have the last source on the sheet, which someone had mentioned before, about the other exception, which is in the opposite direction, and there are a few of these as well, which is something that's not time-bound. And therefore we would have expected what? Women should be obligated. What's the halacha? Women are in fact exempt. Why? Because there's some other factor. A drusha or something else. One of the examples of that is Talmud Torah. And this is something that you also find in the Gemara. But the original, the earliest source of this is a Sifrei, a Medrash, uh, which is, you know, pre- predates the Gemara. And source number 17, this is the Apostle about learning Torah. Now, if you were just reading the Apostle, if you just landed from Mars, I don't know if you would know for sure whether Benechem here is translated as what? Sons or? It could, right? I think you could easily have, if, if you're left to your own devices, you could easily have translated as children. Benechem could be gender neutral or gender specific. As it so happens, the Masorah we have, Torah Shabbal Peh, is that this is gender specific. Benechem, velo benotechem. It's, a, it's saying that you're obligated to teach your sons, but women's education is not have the same level of obligation. Again, I'm talking about pre-Sarsh I'm not telling you halacha l'maysa now. That would have to be a separate topic. But Midah Raisa, again, we can't flinch away from this. I'm not politically correct. I'm telling you the truth. That's my job. Not to be politically correct. Midah Raisa, there is a gender difference. Yes, in the question of Talmud Torah, men and boys are obligated in Torah, and girls and women, uh, strictly speaking, are not. This is a din da No one argues. It's not. You know, sometimes you know people ask me, uh, you know, what's the halacha? I know it's a machlokes. This is not a machlokes. Not, there is not a machlokes about everything. This is not a machlokes. There's no dissenting opinion. Women are exempt from talking. Ah, but it's not zman grama. The answer is there are exceptions to rules in both directions. Women are obligated to certain things you would have thought they'd be exempt from, and they're exempt from certain things that we think would be obligated from. So okay, so Ad Khan, we finished today. I think we saw two very important but different. Uh, foundational pieces of background information. We saw the hashkafa of broadly speaking that yes, you, know, I could, you could write books on this, get PhD dissertations on this. We just saw small samples of very important hashkafic sources from ancient classical sources in Medrash and Gemara all the way to 20th century sources that describe the uh, 
kedusha of women being equal, the worth, the value of women being equal, and in some cases even being superior, and the impact they can make on Jewish history, and the insight, and all sorts of things that make women at least as good, if not uh, better in some cases, but mainly different. Uh, separate but different was the first part of the year from a philosophical perspective, and then we just saw very briefly, with quite a few important sources, again, every one of these were Gemaras and Mishnayis and Midrashim, these are all the foundational sources that we live our lives based on in every other part of our life, which describe the mitzvah difference in obligation between men and women, so there definitely are differences, not as much as we might have thought, but yes, there are differences. In Emir Tashem, next week we will pick up with uh, two final topics, which is all of the halachos that relate to women performing mitzvahs, which they're not obligated in. So a woman should sit in the sukkah, she shouldn't sit in the sukkah. She has to come to shul to hear shofar or not hear if she's doing the mitzvah, she should count Omer, she shouldn't count Omer. And if she is doing that, she should make a bracha. All of that will be the halachic part of next week's year. And then we will also discuss, very importantly, the hashkafic part of next week's year uh, will be a number of the different theories that have been proposed over the generations for not the what, but the why. We just saw the what. What, what, what is the difference between men and women in mitzvahs? So we even saw where it came from halachically, a very technical, dry uh, limud from tefillin. But why? What would be the philosophical reason, you know, the spiritual reason? Why would the Torah make this distinction between men and women when it comes to mitzvot? So there are a few different theories, and we will share those next week as well. Thank you very, very much.